0: The following program is a recording of a live broadcast transmitted 7 a.m. Beijing time.
1: Examining the events that impact and shape China
2: and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you by China Radio International. Paul James with you on this Monday, June 24th, 2019. Welcome to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. Coming up on our program this morning... China's foreign minister is sitting down with some of his African counterparts to discuss outcomes from last year's FOCAC summit in Beijing. Chinese official elected as the head of the UN's food and agriculture organization. Donald Trump's hawkish national security advisor issuing a new warning to Iran. Business, Chinese stocks to become listed on a sub-index in London. Sports, women's world football action turning ugly in one of the quarterfinals, and in entertainment, the Golden Goblet Awards doled out last night at the Shanghai International Film Festival. First, your headline news. It has been confirmed Chinese President Xi Jinping will be present at the upcoming G20 summit in Osaka, Japan, from Thursday to Saturday, Xi Jinping's trip officially at the invitation of Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. During his time in Osaka, Xi Jinping also due to hold one-on-one talks with U.S. President Donald Trump, an agreement which was reached during a telephone conversation this past week. A 5.4-magnitude earthquake which hit Gongxian County in Sichuan over the weekend, now leaving over 30 people injured. Officials saying that none of the injuries are life-threatening. Relief work is said to be progressing in an orderly manner. The quake hitting late Saturday, thought to be an aftershock to a magnitude 6 tremor that killed 13 and injured over 200 in neighboring Chongning County a week early, earlier in the week, rather. Both counties situated on the outskirts of the city of Ibin. In a blow to Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's AKP, an opposition candidate cruising to an even higher margin of victory in the rerun of the Istanbul mayoral election. Unofficial results showing Erkem Imamoglu winning a clear majority of the vote, garnering around 54%. His opponent, former Turkish Prime Minister Ben Ali İldryum, conceding moments after early return showed him trailing well behind. Outcome meaning that Turkey's largest city will not be governed by Erdogan's AKP or its predecessor for the first time in 25 years. İmamoğlu narrowly winning the previous mayoral election on March 31st, but Erdogan's Justice and Development Party challenged that vote. Turkey's electoral board then annulling the results after İmamoğlu had served just 18 days in office. office rather. The loss of Istanbul, once described by Erdogan as being a major step backwards for the AKP, following earlier confirmed losses in other major cities in Turkey, including the capital, Ankara. One person has been killed and as many as 10 others injured as part of a shooting at a bar in the city of South Bend, Indiana. Shooting taking place at a local pub early Sunday morning where anywhere from 50 to 100 people were both inside and outside at the time. So far, no arrests have been made. This incident, though, comes just hours before South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, whose candidate for the 2020 Democratic nomination for president, was to address a town hall meeting connected to the recent police shooting of a black man in South Bend. Chinaplus.cri.cn is your home
0: for
3: everything you want to know about China.
4: The latest news in China and everything China-related from around the world.
3: Everything in focus, all in one place. Bringing you vital information for your business and travel.
4: Chinese culture, language learning and
2: more. Chinaplus.cri.cn Chinaplus.cri.cn Your portal into today's Middle Kingdom. Four minutes past the hour. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi promising more high-quality and sustainable ties among China and African countries. He's made the suggestion while meeting with some of his counterparts from eight different African nations. As part of the sit down in Beijing, foreign ministers talking about cooperation in areas such as infrastructure, agriculture, healthcare, telecom, and energy. Wang Yi also suggesting that African countries continue to work on developing outcomes from the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation in Beijing this past year.
5: The Forum on China-Africa Cooperation was successfully held in Beijing in September last year. We have been actively implementing the outcome of the forum and reaps early harvests. Through the coordinators' meeting, we hope to review the achievements of China-Africa cooperation and work together to plan the next phase of implementation.
2: The African Foreign Ministers in China for a coordination meeting on how to implement FOCAC outcomes from the meeting this past September. Chinese Vice Minister of Agriculture and Rural Affairs being elected as the new Director General of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, Chu Dong Yu becoming the first Chinese national to be elected to that position. has been elected at the ongoing FAO conference, the governing body of the Rome based agency.
4: I will play full range of my efforts to my commitment, lead all staff of FAO system to think for the member countries, work for the people and the farmers, design bigger, do concrete, aim right. Let us join hands-in-hands to build a dynamic FAO for the better world with successful achievements of UN 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development Goals.
2: Chu Dong-yu to officially take over as the new FAO chief on a four-year term on August the 1st. Getting back to that uh, foreign ministers meeting among uh, Wang Yi and uh, African foreign ministers here in Beijing. We're on the line now with Baroni Guthrie, former South African diplomat and analyst with Corpus Capital. Uh, Ms. Guthrie, thank you very much for taking a few moments uh, f- with us. Uh, let's talk about uh, these these meetings. Uh, obviously, they're, they're trying to uh, come to hash out what's, uh, you know, what came forth from the, the FOCAC session here in Beijing back in September. Let's talk about some of these uh, uh, outcomes and what's, what needs to be done. What are some of the areas uh, that uh, African nations really want to focus on when it comes to the outcomes from the FOCAC sessions?
6: Thank you, and thank you for having me on. Mm. Uh, I think it's important to identify what the outcomes were because a further $60 billion was committed to Africa, but it was actually quite difficult to accurately track the $60 billion previously committed in 2015. Mm. So I think that will be weighing on, on the leaders that they want to really be able to show how they have fulfilled those commitments in, in a useful way. Um, at the previous FOCAC summit, China shifted away from its traditional role of providing capital for physical infrastructure and focused a little bit more on the holistic overall development of the continent. The Chinese want a return on their investment into Africa, which is fair, and they really see it as fertile ground for the export now of Chinese business. So this falls in the night of President Xi's first of the eight actions, industrial promotion, which they'll be looking, I think, at this meeting to really advance. Um, in relation to developing Africa as a whole, one of the things China has consistently committed to at the FOTEX summit is education. They've offered Bursaries. They offered fifty thousand government scholarships and fifty thousand training opportunities at the previous FOCAC. So now they'll probably be sitting down. They need to talk about where the vocational training centres they're going to build will be, discuss the curricula, um, perhaps identify the students. The summit was going to have a, a tailor-made program for a thousand high-caliber Africans. Where will they come from? How will they geographically be be spread across Africa? So I think those will be important. And then finally, um, beyond infrastructure, President Xi mentioned trade facilitation, and that requires... Detailed negotiation to facilitate, and it's especially important at a time where trade negotiations with the big powers, for example, the, the United States, is, is deadlocked. So I think that will be a big focus at this
7: event.
2: Yeah. Now you talk about trade, uh, and of course the uh, the development of this uh, Pan-Continental uh, African uh, Free Trade Agreement is, is a major uh, step forward. What what sort of uh, you know influence or a role can China uh, you know play in, in this, uh, you know this broad scale uh, FTA?
6: Well, I think China has already been playing a big role. They've been a constant supporter of of the free trade area, the African free trade area. They understand the potential of the continent and the economic value created once it is connected in such a free market system. Uh, And China's been laying the groundwork both physically with infrastructure over the last few decades. A lot of African infrastructure has been uh, financed by China. They've got a close relationship. China has definitely been using its diplomatic channels to push African countries to consider the free trade area favorably. And China is in a great position now to take advantage of the fact that this it comes into force will be the largest free trade area since the formation of the World Trade Organization. It's got a market of 1.2 billion people and a combined GDP of 2.5 trillion. Hmm. So it falls in line with what they discussed at the FOCAC of moving towards industrialization and developing the manufacturing capacity of Africa. And that intra-regional trade that it would spur would benefit Chinese products, goods and services. It would make it much easier for them to get around the continent. Um, So I think it it really falls in line with both the FOCAC and the One Belt, One Road that China has played a fundamental role in bringing it to this point and and practically implementing FTA goals will rely a lot on what China has done so far um, on the continent. So I think that... China stands to benefit, but has also been a long-term
2: supporter. By Ronnie Guthrie, former South African diplomat analyst with Acorus Capital. Chinese and British authorities announcing a new funding program for education partnerships between the two sides, as well as for other countries involved in the Belt and Road Initiative. Our UK correspondent Liang Tao
1: with more. The UK-China BRI countries Education Partnership Initiative is a multilateral education program designed in partnership between the British Council and China's Ministry of Education. In announcing the winning proposals from the first round of seed funding, Andrew Zedan with the British Council is describing the program, the beginning of a new chapter.
0: Something that the British Council and Ministry of Education have just launched, first of its kind ever, Mm -hmm. is um, this multilateral partnership fund. Mm-hmm. So we will give seed money to UK universities to partner with a Chinese uh, entity and BRI country. And this is really important because this is the beginning of a new, in my opinion, a new chapter mm-hmm. and bringing the relationship to another level.
1: The Zen says there is an urgency in launching this type of initiative. One of the
0: biggest problems we have in the West Mm. with China, the biggest challenges, is China's size. So Chinese universities and uh, research centers are very big. Many people, many resources. We we struggle to match that size. Mm. China's population, I think, is maybe 20 times bigger than the UK. So to get to the same scale, it's very difficult for us. But I think the next level is we bring in a BRI country and we make a multilateral partnership. Mm -hmm. It helps achieve the size that China wants and
1: and have a a successful partnership. So I think this is the next stage. Andrew Zizan says, the initiative is also going to help bolster the UK's education reputation by connecting more UK institutions to educational opportunities in China and amongst the Belt and Road countries. I think there's still significant capacity in the British
0: higher education system to take on many more international students, including from China. In my view, if you look at the statistics, there has been increasing number of Chinese students coming into the UK every year. So the trend... Is for more Chinese students. So whatever's happening with the U.S. and China, the fact is Chinese students every day are knowing more about the quality of British education, and they are coming. They're coming here to benefit from that. And it's exactly the same the other way around. More and more British students are going to China. So I think British education quality is quite effective. Britain already was getting more and more Chinese students. Mm-hmm. So we've really benefited from that and I think the British system has a lot more capacity to
1: take on more. Over 28 universities from 12 countries have applied to be eligible for the 540,000 US dollar investment. Proposals cover studies in areas such as healthcare, police education, food safety, manufacturing, renewable energy, and the global leadership. For CRI, I'm Liang Tao in London.
2: Those attending the annual conference of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences here in Beijing, reviewing China's development as well as opportunities. Sutindra Kumari, a former chair of the Observer Research Foundation in Mumbai, India. China's achievements in multiple fields, economic growth, poverty alleviation, raising the standards of living of over a billion people, Self-reliant advancement in science and technology and eye-catching progress in culture, arts and sports. These are unrivaled by any other
8: country
3: in a comparable time frame.
2: Costa Rican ambassador to China, Patricia Hokemeyer, saying that China's development is good for the rest of the world. China realized
9: the importance of infrastructure and connectivity for the whole world to successfully participate In the still ongoing globalization process, which has benefited so much China, as well as the tiny country of Costa Rica.
2: The two-day annual CAS conference focusing this year on China's urbanization progress, as well as opportunities for countries along the Belt and Road Initiative. FedEx issuing another apology in connection with Huawei. Similar to previous problems involving Huawei deliveries, FedEx claims an operational error prevented a Huawei package from being delivered to the United States. Statement by FedEx says the company has apologized for the error that mistakenly returned the package in question to the shipper comes weeks after the U.S. delivery giant claimed a similar error led to the Chinese tech firm's packages destined for Asia being misdirected to the United States. That came just days after U.S. regulators began hitting Huawei with sanctions, which restrict U.S. firms from doing business with the Chinese company. Chinese authorities launching a formal investigation into FedEx in connection with that incident. At the same time, reports also suggesting that FedEx might be added to China's Unreliable Entities List, a list of foreign firms which are known to harm Chinese companies' interests. Neither the Chinese Commerce Ministry nor FedEx have commented on the likelihood of that happening. Yudu County in Jiangxi, considered the starting point for the Long March. The historic trip, which began in 1934 and taking the Red Army on a grueling two-year, 12,500-kilometer trek from southeast to northeast China, beginning with the crossing of 86,000 soldiers across the Yudu River. We get more from CRI's Chihui Guang.
9: Around two kilometers from the Long March ferry crossing point, there is a quaint Hakka house. The house has around 20-door frames, but no door panels. The owner of the house was Liu Guangpei's great-grandfather, who was a Red Army soldier. Liu Guangpei has heard his great-grandfather's Long March
8: stories ever since he was young. On December 17th, 1934, my great-grandfather donated around 20 door panels to the Red Army to build the floating bridges. The panels are no longer here, but my great-grandfather said he hoped people can think of the Red Army when they see the door frames.
9: To help the Red Army build floating bridges, villagers along the river donated all of the wood they had, which sometimes included wood that was to be used to make coffins. Xiao Ting Ting is a guide at the Red March Memorial.
10: An old man whose last name was Zeng insisted on donating to the soldiers the timber he had for making coffins. The Red Army was reluctant to accept it. But Deng said the Red Army soldiers sacrificed their lives to the war. What does my donation of some timber matter? I saw a farmer destroy his pumpkin shed and donate the wooden boards. Zhang Xiaoping,
9: the vice curator of the memorial, said there were Kuomintang reconnaissance planes in the sky at that time. To hide from them, the construction of the floating bridges could only be carried out at night. The 600-meter-wide Yudu River has eight ferries' crossings, and five of them needed floating bridges. The villagers built and dismantled the bridges 15 times in order to avoid being spotted by the enemy.
8: At that time, we started to build the floating bridges at around 5 p.m. each day. The Red Army crossed the river during the night. To hide from the enemy's planes, we dismantled the bridges the next morning and hit the wooden boards in the nearby forest to make sure the soldiers could safely cross the river.
9: Around 800 villagers also used their fishing boats to carry soldiers across the river. Li Mingrong's family were some of these villagers.
0: My father and grandfather had around 20 fishing boats. They introduced themselves to the Red Army and spent two whole nights carrying more than 6,000 soldiers across the river.
9: Over 16,000 villagers from Yudu took part in the Long March, and many of them would lose their lives. Eighty-five years have passed, and the floating bridges have been replaced with modern structures as Yudu became a new modern city. For CRI, I'm Chihui Guang.
3: For breaking news and stories that matter to you, find us on Twitter by searching for China Plus News, where we'll share with you our up-to-the-minute news, in-depth analysis, and live streaming videos. Visit China Plus News for your window on China and the world.
2: Coming up to 20 minutes past the hour, U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton. Warning Iran to not, quote, mistake U.S. prudence for discretion and weakness. Speaking alongside Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Jerusalem on Sunday, Bolton says no one has granted Iran a hunting license in the Middle East. As President Trump said on Friday, our military is rebuilt, new
4: and ready to go. By far the best in the world. Sanctions are biting and more added last night. Iran can
2: never have nuclear weapons, not against the USA and not against the world. The comments come just days after President Donald Trump announced that he called off military strikes on Iran just 10 minutes ahead of their launch. Trump claims he called off the attacks after learning that 150 Iranians could be killed, contending that it would have been out of proportion to the shooting down of an unmanned American surveillance drone by Iran earlier in the week. Bolton, a longtime Iran hawk, says sanctions will continue against Tehran, also warning that the U.S. does reserve the right to attack at a later point. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, for his part, saying that he's pleased to hear the American sanctions against Iran will continue and that Iran's economic pressure will increase. Palestinian Finance Minister Shukri Bishara rejecting Washington's Middle East peace plan, saying that it ridicules the Palestinians' position. After this bitter experience, no one must be
5: surprised. We are careful and skeptical of what is called the deal of the century, what has been called a couple of days ago, the opportunity of the century. And out of irony, President Trump's term of peace ridicules the Palestinian stance, expressing it in rigid and tedious rhetoric.
2: Conference in Bahrain due to take place tomorrow and Wednesday. Uh, will discuss U.S.-led proposals for an economic vision part of a wider plan billed by the U.S. president as the deal of the century to resolve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Palestinian finance minister confirming that the Palestinian side will not be taking part in that session in Bahrain, suggesting instead that it be canceled and that an emergency session of the Arab League be called instead to deal with the Palestinian budget deficit. Palestinian authorities seeing the economic conference in Bahrain as an attempt to circumvent its demands for the creation of a Palestinian state. The Bahrain session will involve regional stakeholders but will not include Israel. Ethiopia's Prime Minister says that his government has foiled a coup attempt by an internal military group based outside the capital, Addis Ababa. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed saying that the attempted coup involving members of his country's military.
7: Yeah.
2: Some are dead and others are
4: wounded. The crisis we are seeing in the Amahora region is effectively a coup attempt,
2: which was led by a very high-ranking military official and other military personnel. Abiy Ahmed, providing no other details at this time, though. Ethiopian officials have advised the United Nations about the incident, though. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres issuing his own statement expressing deep concern. His statement, though, not providing any other details about the alleged coup attempt. The only details that we really have so far, the U.S. Embassy reporting gunfire being heard on Saturday in Addis Ababa itself, issuing a notice of caution for its own citizens inside the Ethiopian capital at that time. ASEAN leaders issuing a statement saying that they hope to conclude negotiations for the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, the RCEP, within the year. A statement from the now-concluded ASEAN summit in Bangkok, Thailand, saying the RCEP will help the bloc manage uncertainty in the region, especially when it comes to trade frictions among its important trading partners. RCEP, a proposed free trade agreement among the 10 ASEAN member states, as well as six of their FTA partners, including China, as well as Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and India. It's expected to be one of the world's largest trading blocks, accounting for 45% of the world's population, 40% of global trade, and around one-third of the world's GDP. So far, 12 bodies being recovered following a pipeline explosion in Nigeria's oil-rich river state. Blast taking place on Saturday during maintenance work on a pipeline belonging to a subsidiary of the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation. Exact casualty figures remaining unclear at this point. Authorities ruling out sabotage as part of the incident, despite locals scooping up spilled oil when the blast went off. Pipelines in Nigeria, one of that country's biggest revenue generators, often subject to sabotage by disgruntled landholders or by locals looking to siphon off oil for sale on the black market. Collapse of a massive tent at a religious ceremony in India, killing at least 14 people, injuring around 50 others. Strong storm, believed to have ripped down the tent in the village of Barmer, located around 800 kilometers uh, west of New Delhi. Those killed and injured attending the Ram Katha ceremony, popular among Hindu villagers. First genetically engineered salmon, set to go on sale in the United States next year. The company that producing the fish, saying that they grow to full size in just 18 months, roughly twice as fast as regular salmon. We get more from CRIs, Wenjie. The salmon produced by
8: Aqua Bounty are the first genetically modified animals to be approved for human consumption in the United States by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. Pete Boyer is the company's facility manager in Indiana.
7: The early stages of production here uh, are very, very similar to the rest of Atlantic salmon production. Um, at the moment, the fish are reared in tanks, in hatcheries, in the nursery aspect. Where it starts to be different is that we take the fish at a time when they would usually be transferred into sea cages, and we continue the process in tanks um, with systems that clean and reuse the water.
8: He also said that the salmon will be produced more efficiently without the antibiotics chemicals and waste associated with traditional fish farming methods.
7: So we have mechanical filtration, also biological filtration, um, and we also handle gases, so removing carbon dioxide and supplementing oxygen into the water. What that allows you to do is uh, consume a very small quantity of water relative to the amount of fish that you can produce. Um, we also are to the facility. We have a plant that's specifically designed to remove the waste, The solid waste from the water and we have a series of wetlands that provide the final biological polishing of the water.
8: The company spent years working its way through the regulatory approvals process. It says that when a salmon goes on the market, it'll be up to the restaurants and cafeterias to decide whether to tell diners that the fish are genetically modified. In the United States, several grocers, such as Kroger and Whole Foods, have vowed not to sell the fish following a consumer campaign. Most corn and soy in the United States is genetically modified so that it's more resistant to pests and herbicides. This month, U.S. President Donald Trump signed an executive order directing federal agencies to simplify regulations for genetically engineered plants and animals. The move comes as companies are turning to a newer gene-editing technology that makes it easier to tinker with plant and animal DNA. The result is a blurring of the lines around what should be considered a genetically modified organism and what the public thinks of these foods. Craig Jeff with the Center for Science says the approval from the FDA means there are no safety concerns about the fish. The short answer is no. FDA has reviewed the safety data around the genetically engineered salmon and determined that there's no food safety or nutritional difference between that salmon and and a, a normal Atlantic salmon that was farm-raised that you'd get in the supermarket today. But Jeff is concerned that consumers won't know what they are buying. And another group, the Center for Food Safety, is among the groups that have asked grocers to pledge not to sell the fish. It's also suing the FDA for approving sales of Aqua Bounty salmon. For CRI, this
2: is Wenjie. Still to come in business, Chinese stocks to become listed on a sub-index in London today. Sports, women's world football action turning ugly one of the quarterfinals. Entertainment, Golden Goblet Awards, dished out last night in Shanghai. It's Paul James with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour.
4: Want to know what's trending in China? China Plus News Facebook page helps you to discover the real China. From the latest news to quirky Chinese inventions, videos, photos, live streaming and more. Join in the conversation today by searching for China Plus News on Facebook and discover its news, its people, its traditions and culture. China Plus
2: News Facebook page. Open your eyes to the real China. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour. One hour of news and information brought to you by China Radio International. Paul James with you on this Monday morning still to come here on the Beijing Hour. In business, London sub-index to list Chinese stocks as of this morning. Some ugly turns in football action from the Women's World Cup in France. And an entertainment... We're gonna check in with our correspondent in Shanghai to hear about the golden glow uh golden goblets being doled out last night. Now just a reminder, a few ways to keep in contact with us here on the Beijing Hour throughout your day when you're not listening to the program itself, you want to follow us on either Facebook and or Twitter. All you need to do is go into the search bar on either of those social media sites and type in China Plus News, three words, and you will find us that way. You want to download our China Plus app as well and go to chinaplus.cri.cn throughout your day. That'll give you all the latest news and information from China Radio International. And if you want to contact us directly, send us an email, at cn. 31 minutes past the hour. Let's check in with your headline news. It has been confirmed that Chinese President Xi Jinping will be attending the forthcoming G20 summit in Osaka, Japan. That'll be from Thursday to Saturday. Xi Jinping's trip officially at the invitation of Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. As part of his time in Osaka, Xi Jinping, due to hold one-on-one talks with U.S. President Donald Trump, an agreement which was reached during a telephone conversation that the two leaders had over this past week. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi promising more high-quality and sustainable ties among China and African countries, making the suggestion while meeting with counterparts from eight different African countries. As part of the sit-down in Beijing, the foreign minister is talking about cooperation in areas such as infrastructure, agriculture, healthcare, telecommunications, and energy. Wang Yi also suggesting African countries continue working on developing outcomes from the Forum on China-Africa cooperation, which took place in Beijing this past year. Chinese Vice Minister of Agriculture and Rural Affairs being elected as the new Director General of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. Chu Dongyu becoming the first Chinese national to be elected to that position. He's been elected at the ongoing FAO conference, the governing body of the Rome-based agency. Chu Dongyu will officially take over as the new FAO chief on a four-year term on August the 1st. He's going to succeed Brazilian Jose Grizano da Silva, who served as the agency's top official for two consecutive terms since 2011. On a blow to Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdoğan's AKP, an opposition candidate cruising to an even higher margin of victory in the rerun of the Istanbul mayoral election. Unofficial results showing Erkam Imamoglu winning a clear majority of the vote, garnering around 54% of the vote. Is opponent, former Turkish Prime Minister Ben Ali Yildirim, conceding moments after the early return show him trailing well behind. Outcome means that Turkey's largest city will not be governed by Erdogan's AKP or its predecessor for the first time in 25 years. Imamoglu narrowly winning the previous mayoral election on March 31st, but Erdogan's Justice and Development Party challenged that vote. Turkey's electoral board then annulling the results after Imamoglu had served just 18 days in office. Loss of Istanbul, once described by Erdogan as being a major step backwards for the AKP, following earlier confirmed losses in other major cities in Turkey, including the capital, Ankara. 34 minutes past the hour, it's time to check in with what's happening in the world of business on this Monday morning. As always on our Mondays, we start with what you can expect on the global markets this week. Now, market observers are going to be looking ahead to a meeting between U.S. President Donald Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping at the G20, as we mentioned, amid hopes for a thaw in trade relations. Investors say the best that the market really is expecting out of the G20 more of a handshake and a commitment to resume talking. Uh, this could be enough, though, to pep up a trade wary market. Well, anything less eh, it could it could cause the markets to nosedive a little bit. Now, appearances this week by several Fed policymakers are going to be closely watched after the U.S. Central Bank indicated last week that it could cut interest rates. Fed Chair Jerome Powell under increased scrutiny amid alleged threats by Donald Trump discussing economic outlook and monetary policy in New York tomorrow. Trump has reportedly been exploring whether or not the White House has the power to demote Powell amid the U.S. president's continued frustration over previous interest rate hikes. Some key U.S. economic reports this week include the release of durable goods data on Wednesday, along with figures on international trade. Investors also to get an update on the health of the U.S. housing market from reports to be released tomorrow on pending home sales, as well as the House Price Index. Uh, This week also to bring the final reading on first quarter GDP in the U.S. with consensus forecast for an unrevised reading of 3.1%. Now in Europe, Friday's Eurozone inflation data will tell whether or not the European Central Bank's president uh, was right in warning that more monetary easing would come unless prices started to rise faster. Inflation undershooting the ECB's near 2% target since 2013, the rate this past month, 1.2%. Now here in China is this country's securities regulator releasing new rules that will scrap profitability requirements in mergers and acquisition deals involving listed companies. The move part of wider efforts to try to help with corporate restructuring companies involved in high tech and strategic emerging industries will once again be allowed to list on the Chinax board via reverse mergers. A reverse merger involving a private company taking control of a listed firm with oftentimes dim prospects, allowing the merged company to be listed through bypassing the lengthy process involved in initial public offerings. Now, the China Securities Regulatory Commission first began cracking down on suspected reverse mergers on the China export back in 2013. That was in a bid to keep tighter controls on the market and to crack down on insider trading. Now, observers are suggesting uh, the improvements should ultimately increase the quality of listed firms on the ChinaX board, as well as increase the board's valuation level by replacing what have become basically shell corporations with higher tech companies, which have really higher potential. FTSE Russell, a unit of the London Stock Exchange, set to include Chinese A shares on its global indices later on today. Statement saying that the shares will be included in three stages, ending in March of next year. uh is expected, rather, to involve some 10 billion U.S. dollars worth of assets under management. It'll see over 1,200 Chinese firms join FTSE Russell Indices. FTSE also considering adding China's onshore bonds into its global indices, with a final decision on that one to be made sometime in September. Now, for more on the situation, we caught up earlier with Mike Bastian, Principal Consultant at Business Development International. Well, Chinese uh, shares looking to get more involved uh, on the London stock exchange through the uh, FTSE Russell. Uh, now, these uh, the weighting of these shares in particular is going to start off a little bit uh, small, but uh, there's probably some optimism uh, from, the, from the London side of things. Am I correct in assuming
3: so? I think so. I think it, it all depends on the, the further international expansion of Chinese companies, which we've seen over the last few years. So I, I certainly think this is the start of things to come. And Whilst it may be small at the start, it's a very, very positive breakthrough for the, the further internationalization of the Chinese economy and Chinese companies. And I think it will reassure investors, out, assure investors outside China um, of the, the possibilities uh, going forward.
2: Now, of course, this uh, seems to really coincide with uh, the launch, of course, with the Shanghai London Stock Connect system, uh, which is are getting more and more companies uh, involved on both sides of the equation. Uh, just give me a, like a general sense, Mike, about what your expectations are as far as uh, London is concerned when it comes to the, the Chinese markets uh, in particular. Is, is this, you know, a major step by authorities in London and like in city proper saying, look, the Chinese market's sort of where we need to be is this is where we want to be.
3: I think so. I think it's always been the case. Obviously, you you can't go very far these days without talking about Brexit. And I think it has um, led to a a, a real concentration on China and a non-EU market and mainland China in particular. So I think the London-Shanghai Connect is a very exciting opportunity, again, which is another step forward. And I think those investors and those companies um, in London and around London, the UK and Europe are really looking to mainland China and looking for serious investment. And I think they've convinced in in the last few years that the Chinese government really are um, about to, or opening up capital markets, there's real liberalization of the Chinese economy, uh, and that will happen more and more.
2: One of the things though that of course is one a concern here is is the the makeup of of the, the markets here in China as a lot of uh individual investors you know uh, are are the major players in the Chinese market whereas institutional investing is still uh very small right now, so how do you convince institutional investors in London that you know the market is stable enough here uh in china to to really sort of uh dip dip their toes in you know really deeper
3: I think that's a very good point i think institutional investors will want a little bit more transparency a little bit more information on a regular basis and, and i think that has to happen so if the, the, the china market really is seen as an opportunity these in, institutional investors will put their money in but they'll want to see um, a very clear picture so i think we do need to see more transparency and we need to see a, a greater presence of chinese companies on the european and international stage so that they can really feel they're connecting and they're getting to know these companies better and they really know how they operate.
2: Mike Bastian, Principal Consultant at Business Development International. European retailer Carrefour agreeing to sell 80% of its China business to Suning for nearly $700 U.S. dollars in cash. French company says it will retain a 20% stake in its business as well as two seats out of seven on Carrefour's China supervisory board deal pending approval from Chinese regulators being cleared by Carrefour's board expected to close by the end of this year. Huawei filing a lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Commerce claiming the unlawful seizure of the company's telecommunication gear shipped to the United States for testing. Court filings show Huawei shipping several pieces of telecom equipment to an independent testing lab in California to undergo certification testing back in 2017. U.S. government then seizing the equipment in Alaska as it was being sent back to China. Huawei lawyers argued that the seizure was illegal, noting that no export licenses are required under the U.S. Export Administration regulations for gear that's made outside the United States. Pizza Hut now offering up slices on the roof of the world. U.S.-based pizza chain entering the market in Tibet, opening up its first restaurant in downtown Lhasa next to the Jokong Temple. Neighbors a KFC restaurant, which is also opened up on the same street on the same day. Of course, Tibet seeing an increase in international brands entering the relatively untapped market in recent years. 2016 seeing KFC becoming the first global fast food chain to open up a branch In Tibet, new data showing that China's iron ore output expanding at a faster pace last month. Stats from the National Bureau of Statistics showing that iron ore output increasing by 1.5% year-on-year in May, up from the 1.2% growth seen in April. These same stats showing a slowdown, though, in refined copper output through May, which declined by 5.2% year-on-year. Mining of 10 major non-ferrous metals in China, including zinc, nickel, and tin amongst them, uh, slowing from April's growth of 4.9% down to 2.2% in May.
7: You're listening to the Beijing Hour,
0: 60 Minutes of Comprehensive News, your window on China and the world.
2: Coming up to 43 minutes past the hour, well, hometown happiness and some, let's call it ugly, on the pitch this morning from the Women's World Cup football uh, action. Uh, Let's get an update on what's happening in sports with our young guang. Thank you, Paul. And the Women's World Cup
4: host France has edged past Brazil 2-1 this morning in extra time to reach the quarterfinals. Captain Amdine Henry scored a game-winning goal in 109th minute for France from a long free kick. France will meet the winner between defending champion the United States and Spain in the last eight. In the other match, England had an easy 3-0 win over Cameron in a game full of dramatic scenes. Cameron players became notably irritated during the match after two video review decisions that went against them. They delayed play twice to protest for the cause which allowed England's second goal and then denied Cameron a goal due to an offside. Two players of the African side were also caught throwing elbows and spitting on their England competitors. England will next face Norway for place in the semi-finals. In the Copa America, Leno Messi has avoided another disappointment with his national team, with Argentina defeating Qatar 2-0 to escape elimination in the group stage. The win secures Argentina's spot in the quarterfinals of the South American competition where Messi's squad will face Venezuela. Argentina coach Leno Scaloni. Eh,
5: We are satisfied because we qualify for the next round. We are also happy because the team in some moments of the game played well. Of course, there are a few things to improve, but against our next rival, Venezuela. They are a team that we played against not so long time ago, and we lost against them. They are a very interesting team. They drew against Brazil. They have a clear idea of what kind of football they want to play. Also, they have played together now for a long time. It is going to be a very difficult rival.
4: Argentina's advance was aided by Colombia, which edged Paraguay 1-0 in the other game of the group. Colombia remains perfect in the Copa America with three wins. They will have to wait for Group C matches tomorrow to to know which squad it will play in the quarterfinals. Paraguay finished third in the group with two points and will have to wait until tomorrow to know whether it will advance as one of the best third-place teams. In Chinese Super League action, Dalian Yifan has been forced to settle for a 2-0 draw at home to bottom-dwelling Tianjin Tianhai. Tianhai remains in last place in the CSL on 9 points, 5 behind 11th Yifan. The other match on Sunday saw Chongqing sway under precious away victory 3-2 over mid-table opponent Wuhan Zhou. With a win, Chongqing overtakes Wuhan in the standings, climbing to 6th. In basketball, Team China has claimed its first ever 3-on-3 women's world cup victory, beating Hungary 19 to 13 in the final. The win should help uh, give the Chinese squad a higher standing as 3-on-3 basketball makes its Olympic debut in Tokyo next year. The same Chinese squad won the Asian Games gold last year. China reached the final this weekend in dramatic fashion after beating Australia 15-14 in overtime. Chinese centre Wang Jiahe was the standout player and scored a winning basket to send her side through to the final. On the men's side was the United States beating Latvia 18-14 to, to win the title. China's national basketball team has gone down to Australia's NBL United 86-74 in the final of this weekend's International Basketball Challenge event in Qingdao. The tournament is a warm-up for Team China ahead of the FIBA World Cup, which will be held later this year in China. China recorded two victories in its first two games, but went down to the Australian score due in part to low shooting accuracy. Several of China's top-level players missed the series due to injuries. Last season's CBH MVP Wang Zhilin was the top scorer for China for the third straight game with 15 points. Team China is now set to take part in the NBA Summer League, which gets underway next month. In tennis, Andy Murray has completed a stellar return from hip surgery by winning the Queen's Club doubles title with Feliciano Lopez. Murray spent five months away from professional competition until this week. He and Lopez beat Joe Swansbury and Rajiv Ram 7-6-5-7-10-5 in the final.
8: It's a special, special week for me for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't know if I was going to be back competing at this level again a few months ago, so means more than almost some of the, the, the singles tournaments.
4: The win is López's second title at the Queen's Club after the Spaniard took the singles title earlier in the day, downing Gail Simón in a three-set final. In other action, Roger Federer got his Wimbledon preparations off to a perfect start. He beat David Goffin 7-6-6-1 to claim a record extending 10th title at the Hala Open.
7: It's amazing. For um, some reason, I never thought I was going to make, make it anymore. Didn't think of it much. I just thought uh, match for match. And because the second round of quarters was so tough that uh, um never really thought about how it would feel if I won. And now it's uh, it's reality. Uh, first time ever I could win a, a title ten times in in one place. So it's obviously a very special moment in my career.
4: On the women's side, Ashley Barty beat Julia George's 6-3, 7-5 to win the, Na- the Nature Valley Classic in Birmingham, England. The women's Barty replaces Naomi Osaka to become the new world number 1. In Formula One, Lewis Hamilton has taken this year's French Grand Prix, take, leading from pole to post for his sixth win of the season. The five-time world champion now leads his Mercedes teammate Valtteri Bottas by 36 points in this year's drivers' uh, championships. We're creating history together, and and it's um you know, I'm I'm so proud of everyone, I'm so proud to be a part of this team, this group of people, you know. And it's just, Valtteri did a great job this weekend as well, so yeah, I'm hyped. Bottas finished second, but a whopping 18 seconds behind Hamilton. Ferrari's Charles Leclerc on his home track placed third, almost catching Bottas on the final lap. Sparge and Nevato took fifth, managing to steal an extra point in the drivers' championship race for fastest lap. More than 500 races from home and abroad have taken part in the Zhejiang Great Bay Area Cycling Open in Yuyao. The competition, mainly designed for amateurs and cycling enthusiasts, features a 41-kilometer route through Yuyao's Siming Mountain Scenic spot. The race is the third leg of the cycling event, which is aimed at promoting the sport and building another international cycling tournament after the tour of Taihu Lake in Zhejiang. The final stage is this coming weekend, which will see top Chinese riders compete in Ningbo.
0: Everything and focus all in one place. China Plus focuses on the Middle Kingdom, bringing you breaking news and the stories that matter to you. Search for China Plus in the App Store or Google Play.
2: 50 minutes past the hour it's time to turn over to what's happening in the world of entertainment and the winners of the Shanghai International Film Festival's Golden Goblet Awards being doled out last night for more on the awards and more on the highlights of the event itself we're on the line now with our reporter Wei Fan who's been covering all the happenings for us in Shanghai including last night's Golden Goblet Awards uh Fan thanks for taking a few moments out for us now let's talk about uh, Uh, Last night's uh, big festivities, the winners of this year's Golden Goblet Awards, detail it for us, would you please?
10: Of course. Good morning, Paul. I like your enthusiastic (laughs) introduction. That's really good. The Golden Goblet Award was taking place at the Shanghai Grand Theater Theater last night. Iranian film Castle of Dreams was the biggest winner. took home three awards, Best Feature Film, Best Director, and Best Actor. Castle of Dreams tells the story of a father who has been absent for three years to rebuild his relationship with his children. The jury of the Golden Goblet Award said, The film shows the truth of life in a narrow space and a limited time, but revealing the truth of life and a surprisingly multifaceted human nature. Director Raza Marakarimi earned the best director for his excellent control of the details of the film. The jury Grand Prix and Best Actress goes to a Georgia, Russia, and Sweden co-production Inhale, Exhale. Salami Demuria, the leading actress of the film, won a title for her outstanding performance, which truly shows the relationship between people. The movie details a story of how a female doctor managed to start a new life after serving time in prison.
2: Now, let's uh, talk about the the festival itself. Of course, the, the awards are always the big story of the day, but there's a lot of little interesting and sort of side notes that always come along with uh, the Shanghai International Film Festival. Tell us a little bit about what, what was going on you know, before uh, all, all of these awards took place.
10: Sure, there are two things I think are the highlights of the festival. First, the Best Actor Award was shared by Chinese actor Chang Feng in the film The Return and Hamid Sabri Bahadat, who performed in the Iranian film Castle of Dreams. Chang, who is over 90 years old, actually 96, was praised by the jury for his perfect portrayal of an elderly man who is yearning for his homeland. Then, second... A renowned British actor, Tom Hiddleston, appeared on the red carpet at the closing ceremony. His handsome appearance set off a warm atmosphere on the red carpet. And later, he and the Jewelry Member of the Golden Goblet Awards, Wang Jingchun, together presented the Best Actress Award. And additionally, Festival Ambassador Wu Jing, famous Japanese actress Masami Nagasawa, and Wang Lu appeared on the red carpet. Those are the highlights of the Golden Goblet Awards of the 22nd Shanghai International Film Festival. So with all the winners announced, the festival will conclude it today. Back to you, Hall.
2: All right. We'll see you back here in Beijing fairly soon. That's our Wu Fan, who's been covering the Shanghai International Film Festival for us. Film news, Pixar's Toy Story 4. Uh, bringing the box office to life a little bit after a three-week uh, sequel slump, a slump if you want to call it that. Uh, however, the $118 million U.S. dollar debut this past weekend, coming in below industry expectations, somewhat surprisingly, uh, it debuts, uh, still ranks fourth highest uh, amongst animated film openings ever, but uh, that's not in for inflation, of course. Now, heading into the weekend, uh, 140 to $150 million opening for Toy Story 4 seemed almost assured. Now, Toy Story 3, if you want to do the calculation, made close to $130 million in today's dollars, uh, compared to nine years ago when the, that film came out. Uh, the opening for Toy Story 4, it follows a string of a mm, couple kind of unperforming sequels, including The Dark Phoenix, that's the X-Men film, as well as Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Godzilla, of course, lots of those, and then uh, Men in Black uh, International. Uh, Toy Story 4, uh have something though that those other films really didn't have which is actually really good reviews currently rated at 98% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes Fifty-seven children's dramas from China and abroad set to begin taking the stage next month in several Chinese cities, including here in Beijing, as well as Shandong's capital, Jinan, and Sichuan's capital, Chengdu. China's National Theatre for Children announcing that this year's China Children's Theatre Festival is going to run from July the 6th to August the 11th. International productions are going to include The Tale of Peter Rabbit by the Chicago Children's Theatre, as well as a puppetry show entitled Diva by the Danish Sophie Krog Theater. In addition to the stage shows, both the international and Chinese troops will be sitting down for forums to discuss how to promote children's shows around the world. Uh, The China Children's Theater Festival uh, with troops from 14 different countries involved. Large-scale Chinese cartoon and comic book exhibition underway in Osaka, Japan. More than 130 pieces from China on display at the event. Miroko Michikaga, the Japanese academic expert in animation.
4: Such an opportunity for exchange is great. It's my first time to hear such comprehensive and profound statement on China-Japan animation cooperation from Chinese government officials, which is very
7: impressive and moving.
2: Now, a series of forums, seminars, as well as animation screenings are going to be part of the event, which, as you may have expected, has been set up in Osaka, Japan, to coincide with the forthcoming summit in that city, which will run from Thursday uh, through until Saturday. Now, after Osaka and after the G20 comes and goes, the Chinese cartoon and comic book exhibition is going to be on the move as well. It'll move over to the Japanese city of Nara in July. A series of Chinese cartoons, including Monkey King, creating a tremendous uproar in the Heavenly Palace, due to be shown through uh, the online uh, platform of Tokyo Television. Recapping your top story, China's foreign minister sitting down with some of his African counterparts to discuss outcomes from last year's FOCAC Summit in Beijing. On behalf of the Beijing Hour staff, it's Paul James in Beijing, hoping you'll join us for our next edition of the Beijing Hour to open a window to the world together.